Welcome to Citizens of Tech, show number one. You guys know me. I'm Ethan Banks, and you know me from the Packet Pushers podcast. This is a new show that we're experimenting with, and the idea here is to not talk about deep diving on networking and all that kind of stuff that you're used to hearing me and uh, and Greg Farrow talk about. Uh, instead, this is a show just for nerds about tech, because a lot of us that work in IT, we just love tech. And joining me is a co-host that hopefully we're going to be doing this together week by week as he and I have been planning this thing together for a while, Mr. Eric Sutfin. And uh, Eric, why don't you introduce yourself to the citizens of tech audience? Sure thing. Well, I am a lifelong tech nerd uh, ever since I was a kid playing and tinkering and breaking and then subsequently trying to unbreak computers <laughs> and, uh, you know, any gadget that I could get my hands on. Um, always needed to know how things worked. And so I took apart the dishwasher and I took apart bicycles and I took apart computers and got scolded and had to put them back together, things like that. So, uh, and then on, on a career front, I I've come up through uh, everything from help desk, you know, as the, the launching point for a career up to systems, admin, uh, engineer, and now currently the IT infrastructure manager for a software as a service company. So I, I sort of run the gamut on the IT side of things. And that's, you know, it's par for the course when when you have a love of tech to to sort of try to dive into it in, in any capacity that you can. So when you were talking about the uh, uh, taking things apart and putting things back together as a child. OK, this is me. So here's a memory for you. Uh, one, I had this telescope when I was real, I don't know, five or six or something like that. It came in, it, it was a telescope with, uh, with three sections and you could, you know, depending on how far you, uh, pulled the thing out, you yep. could see further away and get things into focus and all that stuff. Okay. I had a little accident with this thing one day. It <laughs> fell off the edge of my desk or something, fell on the floor and the end of it popped off and all the lenses fell out. Um, and so the actually, oh no, no, I remember now it was actually at the kitchen table and my mother was there and my aunt or something was there and they just saw the lenses and, uh, uh they all fell out in order and they, the lenses had, uh, had little plastic spacers between them, but they all fell out together and they threw them all back into the tube and it was all good. And, uh, and everything should have been working fine. Only me being the guy that has to take things apart said, no, they couldn't have got that back together right. So I, I popped the cap back off and took them all back out and started screwing with things. And forever after, it was like looking into a kaleidoscope. I could never get the thing to work right at all after that. I was that kid. And I something – uh, a set of binoculars. I took those freaking things apart and put them back together too. Bicycles. Yep. There was a bicycle that was at my grandmother's house that belonged to my cousin or something. And uh, it wasn't rideable. There was something wrong with it. I figured it out. Whatever it was, I got it sorted and I was riding that bike. It, it was a girl's bike, but I was not too proud because I put it together. It's neither there, here nor there. I, I took my sister's bike apart, which had that banana seat. You know, this is the 80s. So yeah, it had yeah. that banana seat and unicorn streamer handles and all that. And uh, I, I didn't have the most success getting that back together, honestly. And she wasn't too happy about that. My dad <laughs> had to had to step in on that one. But um, yeah, taking things apart to see how they work. I think that's that's most nerds can probably identify with this. Well, all right, let's talk about citizens of tech. So our idea for the show is just to be nerds talking about nerdy tech. And this isn't going to be just digital stuff. It's also going to be biotech or power or cars or whatever it is that we've been reading in the tech news that's interesting to us. 
And we thought we'd do this in a, a three-segment format. At least that's what we're going to try. Um, we'll start out with talking about the present, news of the day, things that we saw that were interesting. Then we thought we'd take a look back at the past, stuff we loved when we were kids or stuff that was just you know cool in the past, really awesome scientists, anything tech-related from history that we think is awesome and we want to talk about. And then we'll look ahead to the future, stuff that's coming on the horizon, either real soon or maybe way off, but that we think is really interesting interesting to us and we'll uh, we'll tip our hats towards what's coming soon or or not that soon whatever things of the future that's the big idea the future <laughs> so let's hop into the news with uh stuff coming from the present or a stuff <laughs> stuff of the present with a story from TechCrunch about uh, coin and uh, this article says one credit card to rule them all. The idea here with coin is that you get this physical device, some kind of a uh, a physical token that you can pair to up to eight cards of your own. Those could be your credit cards, debit cards, uh, your loyalty cards, these sorts of things. You can manually enter them into the coin. You can. Uh, it comes with a little card reader you can plug into the headphone jack, so you could uh, slide the card that way to enter it. You could take a picture of it. Uh, and all those things go into your your coin, okay? And then uh, coin uses 128-bit encryption over Bluetooth and to, uh, to, to secure communication between itself and the phone. And the idea there is to prove that you're present when you're using the coin. And so the whole thing here, you to use it, you press a button. Uh, coin wakes up. It looks for your phone to unlock itself. If your phone isn't there, you can unlock it manually with a six-digit PIN. And then once it's alive, you can use it like a regular credit card. The thing stays awake and alive for uh, for seven minutes. And the point of this, I mean, there's other technology that's like this in the mobile payment space. But the, 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 the news bit of this is that these guys are finally going active and starting to ship the product. But are they too late to the game, I think, is the question. Yeah, I, I mean, Apple Pay is obviously the big the big uh, dog on the block here. And then there's Samsung pay and, you know, noun pay, just insert a noun and put pay on the end. Yeah, someone's, yeah. someone's coming up with something. However, I, I don't know that, uh, that it's too late for a new company to come in with, with a new idea, uh, a, a new take on it. I mean, where you can have these eight cards, I, I, Apple pay being specific to your phone, not tied to, to any other Mm-hmm. device or card or anything i think they they're they are bringing something to the table here and yes there's a huge install base already out there with apple pay you know just millions mm-hmm. and millions and By millions default, of iphones right. yep. um you know they have to be uh the the uh, biometrically uh enabled iphones for apple pay to work i believe uh, yeah i thought that was part of the unlock scheme could, yeah so could, your four doesn't work but your five and up does right yeah, yeah. you need to have your your biometric entry for it to unlock um so I, I can see this having a place, you know, there, there still are, you know, millions and millions of Android phones out there as well. So if, if this is the solution that's going to unify the Android platform, they could actually make something of this. And if, if you don't necessarily require a phone to interact with it as well, potentially this is a gap fill for mm-hmm. people that aren't ready to embrace, you know, oh, I'm, I'm paying with my phone. People that can't mm-hmm. wrap their head around that necessarily. Um, well, it's that, one of the examples they gave in the article about coin was when the thing's unlocked, you can then hand it to the waiter at the restaurant so you can go and scan your card, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it, there's, it's useful to still have a physically present card of some kind. Sure. You know, one, 
I'll, I'll tell you one thing that's uh, annoying to me is carrying around a bunch of cards in my wallet. So yep. I have a debit card, I have a credit card, and then other cards. If I could consolidate that into one physical thing and still use it the same, uh, you know, if it's convenient enough, that's that works for me. And and I like the idea of being able to send the card away and it it won't work without the presence of your phone or your pin number, because one of the things, you know, you go to a restaurant yeah. and you send the waiter off with your credit card. What's he doing with that? Right. While he's gone. Exactly. Or she's yes. gone, you know, it, snap a photo of the front, snap a photo of the back and shopping spree, you know? Yes. So if, if you can mitigate that with technology like this, it's a no brainer to me. Well, it's another case of, of the speaking of that specific issue, the U S kind of being behind the times because in Europe and even in Canada, a chip and pin, uh, much more common bringing the swipe to your table side is, yeah. It's much more common to people disappearing with the your credit card into the black nethers of the restaurant. Le- much less common. Yeah. Mm, interesting. And like tipping too. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A new bit of uh, another bit of tech here. We ran into an article where it says Disney's got a new 3d printer. You're like, Ooh, Disney's got a 3d printer. How awesome is that? I'm going to, well, print- it's just kind of weird. <laughs> I'm going to print Mike Wazowski. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what's interesting about this printer is that it's making huggable things out of fabric was the uh, was the headline. And and here's the whole idea of this. Most 3D printers are going to make it's going to be making an object out of something that's very hard and unfriendly. Uh, as far as that goes, what if you want to print something awesome and cute for your little kid? You can't give them that. You want something huggable, right? <laughs> so this thing, um, this 3D printer from Disney makes a 3D object out of felt. Uh, so felt is, you know, this, if you've never seen it before, it's like a thick fabric. You'd use it for, you know, crafts and, you know, various other things. And the idea is the machine builds this thing up layer by layer and then cuts shapes out of it. Uh, and then the felt is adhesive. And so the whole thing kind of gloms together in a big block. And then when it's all done printing, you just tear off the excess bits from the outside. And, uh, and what you're left with is some Cute little critter. I don't know that it's that practical. But. <laughs> it's like crafting without the crafting. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. So if that. you have, you know, you know someone that's artsy craftsy and, you know, they spend hours and hours crafting something. I'm just going to press print and peel off the outside of it. There you go. There's my craft. I'm done. <laughs> I don't know where Disney goes with this thing. I mean, it's, it was just interesting. I was like, huh. One okay. of the things that when I was looking at this, they said is, you know, it's it's not even so much about the, the finished product that's going to come out of this. It's about the research uh, and, and the laboratory that they've built to design yeah. this in tech breeds tech. So, yep. you know, they've got the facility there to continue research into further 3D printing and things. So, I mean, yeah, maybe it's not useful, but it is it's interesting yep. and something may come from it in the future. So the next item up on the list here is the portable Raspberry Pi laptop. It's a do-it-yourself kit that uh, uses a, a five-inch TFT module and a Pi Juice battery module. I'm going to assume most of you nerds know what a Raspberry Pi is, right? It's the super small. You can hold it in your hand. Full-blown PC you system can, on a board. Yep. Uh, USB powered. It's got an SD card slot. It's got an HDMI port and uh, and an Ethernet jack and. Uh, I have one downstairs that I've been messing with. I paid less than a hundred bucks for it with a case. You can run Python on it. It comes with a, you know, kind of a Linux distro. It's another saying, turn this thing into a portable laptop. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a great laptop that uses, uh, you know, an external keyboard and an external mouse and yeah. a five inch screen. And it, it's very, it's a very cool project. You, you can either uh, build laser cut or 3d print, 
your uh, case for the for the screen. But again, it's it's not going to be very practical. You got to lug all this stuff around. You know, there's something to be said for it. Here I am. I'm lifting my laptop that's in he, front of me. He is here. lifting his laptop right now. It's really amazing. Is. It's going through the air and everything. Uh, <laughs> there's something to be said for a, a a single piece unit, but. The idea of taking a Raspberry Pi and turning it into a, a portable device is is appealing just because it, because I can because reasons well, street cred street cred yeah, yeah. I mean you, it uses the Pi Juice battery and, uh, and the TFT screen so when you're you're out and about with your wireless keyboard and mouse to your Raspberry <laughs> Pi there is nothing nerdier than that which is would be why it caught my attention I'm just picturing sitting down like on a train and putting the screen down you know on the opposite seat or something and sitting with your keyboard and looking at people like what what's up yeah. I got I'm doing this. <laughs> Look at you with your mobile phone and your laptop. <laughs> uh, another bit of news. Um, Google wants to speed up the web with its quick protocol. Q-U-I-C, the quick uh, protocol. All right, let's talk about this thing for a minute. Because if you've followed Google a bit and if you use the Chrome browser, you've been using something called Speedy, S uh, S-P-D-Y, the Speedy protocol, which actually formed the basis for the HTTP2 protocol. Mm. Okay, so w- what is quick all about? In a nutshell, the idea behind Quick is to uh, – it's based on UDP instead of TCP, which means it's not acknowledged. And if it's not acknowledged, that means you can uh, reduce the impact of latency on your network connections. And so that gaming tends to use uh, UDP. Voice over IP tends to use UDP because those – for those sorts of communications – you're not if you didn't get there it's too late you're not going to resend it it doesn't so you just going to use the most efficient transport as po- as you possibly can to get it there and so google is is kind of tweaking some things with udp uh, inside of quick and uh the the idea here is, well a couple of things that they're adding congestion control automatic retransmission uh so it's somewhat more reliable than a pure udp and so the idea here is over a high latency connection, you use Quick to make a connection much more quickly. Now, I don't know what you're going to be able to do with Quick ultimately, because if you know anything about HTTP, like using your web browser, it is TCP based. It's not like you can, hey, I'm going to use Quick now for HTTP. That's not how the spec works. So it's it's interesting. Um it, you know, and it's another, again, one of those Google experiments, but Google experiments kind of have a way of making themselves into some sort of a standard, you know, and as they've done some early tests here, users who connected to YouTube over quick report, and I'm quoting this from the article here, about 30% fewer rebuffers when watching videos because of quick's improved congestion control and loss recovery over UDP, users on some of the slowest connections also see improved page load times with quick what do you think about quick uh, it, it sounds interesting i'm i'm i guess i'm wondering how uh how we're doing you know detection of when there's when there's a drop or whatever if it's if it's not there's mm. no you know handshake really going on there's no uh you know check in uh, yeah we received that no we didn't receive that i'm i'm wondering and i i don't i don't know that the that the article went into it but uh, I'm wondering what the, the mechanism is there for. So the article didn't go into it, but there is uh, an IETF draft kicking around supposedly. I didn't I didn't look it up yet, but supposedly the IETF is if, – if Google has submitted a draft to the IETF, the intent would be let's standardize this thing and do something with it. Sure. So all of that data would have to be spec'd inside the draft. And I mean Google's got code. They're doing something with this mm. and testing it. It's, it's not just – 
what happens so often in the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force drafts are they go there and then they die. <laughs> unicorn. It's where unicorn tears go to die. Well, right? this is something that's actually working. You know, that's something that they've been doing testing with and so on. And so I'm sure there's there's some meat there. Um, so it's it's a very interesting concept. Yeah, yeah. There, there there's definite uh, applications for it. Efficiency with reliability. That's that's a good thing. And so. Another article here. Here's some absolute trivia for you. Why do your knuckles crack? Now, Eric, you know you knew this from your gut. You thought everybody knew this, right? I, I thought it was was relatively common knowledge. There's synovial fluid between your joints. You know, it acts as a cushion, a barrier between the joints, so they don't rub together. Cartilage serves similar purpose, but you know, when you when you crack your fingers, you, you're you're popping that synovial fluid sac. I, I thought this was common knowledge. Apparently not, but. Well, I guess that part is the is common knowledge, oh, okay. but 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 then specifically how the sound is formed was in question. Yes, it's got something to do with the fluid going into that void that's created uh, in your joint, but someone actually went to the trouble to figure this thing out oh, using wow. an MRI. So they're actually looking in real time at a person. Uh, while their knuckles were being cracked to determine exactly what it is that causes the noise as tied to synovial fluid. So, so there's a guy who's some kind of a knuckle cracking champion. His last name's <laughs> Fryer. I did, right. I didn't know there was such a thing. You know, I mean, you can be good at anything, I guess. Kids aspire to great things. Can you crack your knuckles really well? You can be world champion at that. You could, it could be you. I can do songs well, with my knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> So this guy, last name Fryer, his fingers were inserted one at a time into a tube attached to a cable. So I'm quoting the article here. This is a a CNET article. Uh, Links will be in the show notes. This tube slowly pulled on each finger until the knuckle cracked. And in each instance, it was absolutely the formation of the bubble in the synovial fluid, not like the evacuation of the bubble after it was done. The formation of the bubble in the synovial fluid that was associated with a popping sound occurring within 310 milliseconds. So my finger cracks have a latency of 310 milliseconds. Gotcha. <laughs> All right, network nerds listening to this show, you now know the packet over knuckle crack is a 310 millisecond delay. And we've got to work on the technology to get that delay down or start using quick. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the next item on the list here is uh, there. So there's a, a recent study was completed searching 100,000 galaxies for signs of alien life. And, you know, there are other searches out there. Obviously, there's SETI is the big mm-hmm. name. Yep. But from the article, basically, they're, they're trying to determine whether an advanced spacefaring civilization that uses large amounts of energy from its star, uh, galaxy stars to power their computers, spaceflight communication, uh, something that we can't yet imagine. Fundamental thermodynamics tells us that this energy must be radiated away as heat in the mid-infrared wavelengths. Uh, this is quoting the assistant professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the Center for Exoplanets and Habitable Worlds at Penn State University. The guy's name is Jason T. Wright. So basically, they're they're looking for signs of technology, essentially, uh, in the mid-infrared wavelengths. Uh, and they've they've scanned 100,000 galaxies here looking mm-hmm. for this information and, and basically come up dry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 100,000 yeah. galaxies, that's a lot of star systems to, to scan on. It, it's a lot of galaxies. But OK, so I have a couple of... of 
questions about this. And that, okay, well, one thing is the article makes the point that yeah, a hundred thousand is just scratching the surface because there's billions upon billions of uh, star systems and galaxies that we can go out and, and look at after. Out sure. There. Yeah. The the suspicion quoted in the article is the number of galaxies out there is at least a hundred billion. <laughs> so if we searched a hundred thousand, that is less than a hundred billion by a lot. So it's not like yeah, we didn't find anything in a hundred thousand galaxies. Yeah, you know, who cares? We we took one drop of water out of the ocean, didn't find what we were looking for. Yeah, what do you know about that? Yeah, it's kind of like I, I lost my keys in the yard and I searched a, a one, you know, one meter by one meter square and didn't find it. Right. So they must be gone. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that I was wondering about is, okay, they're only searching for this one specific thing. I mean, that's they're basically making an assumption that intelligent life out there and with growing civilizations are going to have this very particular heat signature. Hmm. And we're also searching over a vast distances. Can we really be that granular from this far away to effectively detect what's going on out there? I mean, I guess they know what they're talking about. They're the scientists and the <laughs> astrophysicists and all that stuff. I don't want to second guess them. It's just, you know, that's kind of a natural question that makes me wonder. It kind of feels Star trek you know? Yeah. I can tell that someone was here. Follow their ion trail, you know, their warp signature, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, okay. Well, yeah. clearly we need to get Neil deGrasse Tyson on here. That's. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be right over. Yeah, I've, I've I'll no just doubt. call him up. No <laughs> doubt. <laughs> I follow him on Twitter. He knows who I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I agree on that. You know, the, the spectrum that they're searching on, the, the specifics that they're looking for. I mean, there, there's multiple problems with searching for intelligent life out there and mm. and that's a big one and the other one is you know the 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 fourth dimension piece here if there ever is or was intelligent life out there who knows if we've missed them you know you 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 agree to meet at a certain place xyz coordinates mm. but if you don't agree to meet at a certain time you're going to miss each other yeah, that's an interesting thought because how far away are a lot of these galaxies that we're surveying and how old is the light signature by the time it gets to us? Right. I mean, you could be talking about hundreds of thousands of years or more yeah. if, in, in these really remote sections. You know, it depends on, on what you know galaxies they're looking at, what segment of the sky. If intelligent civilization existed, it, maybe it was 100 million years ago, mm. you know, so we, we, we're miss, we missed them, you know. <laughs> Mm. So, I mean, it's an interesting piece and, it, you know, it's interesting and, and uh, useful, useful study. But I think it's it's a very thin sliver of of the research on the topic. All right. At this point in the show, we want to introduce a feature we hope to do regularly called Death Watch. Death, Death Watch. Watch. Technology that is about to die. And uh, we're calling it on title very early on. This is uh, <laughs> this is Jay-Z's music service title, if you've heard of it. It's, he's intending to compete against Spotify and Pandora and those sorts of music services. Uh, last I checked, it was 20 bucks a month for to stream from Tidal. And his goal of charging – the reason he was charging that much isn't so that Jay-Z can be more rich. Well, it probably is. But, yeah. but, but he's saying it's so that artists can be compensated uh, better and get more money out of it. 
uh, and therefore you're going to pay more per month for this service. It's going to die, isn't it? It's totally going to die. I, that's my take on it. I mean, the the problem out of the gate here is you have, you know, it's Madonna and Jay-Z and Beyonce and uh, yeah. I think Jack White and a few others. Yes. And they're, they're, you know, trying to champion this for the artists movement where, you know, they don't make enough artists don't make enough money. Mm-hmm. Their net worth is like two point two billion dollars. Just the five or six founders of the company, mm-hmm. um, which tells me that, you know, it, it is possible. Now, I, I understand that with Spotify and, and things like this, Pandora, the payment rates are very low. And I'm not I'm not arguing the fact that artists probably are entitled to a bit more of the share. But I think that the problem here isn't the streaming services. I think the problem is the record labels. Yes, I agree with that completely in in the sense that if you dig into this and you start looking at the kinds of deals that artists get out of major record labels, it's not that the streaming services are undercompensating. It's that the percentage of the compensation that goes to the artist happens to be very small through no fault of the streaming companies, but because of the contractual obligations that uh, that those artists have signed to get out on that record deal uh, to make that record and have it go out the door, they gave up X percentage of their income to the record company. And the record company takes that money for their profits, of course, but also to do the marketing and to do the packaging of the material and to do distribution of the music and, you know, and so on and so on. Uh, and so uh, to a point, it is what it is. You can change the distribution model, but it doesn't mean artists are going to get you know, more as a percentage basis anyway. Right. And whether the record labels want to admit it or not, that business model is going to die and and they're going to fight it kicking and screaming. But digital distribution, you know, indie, indie artists are, are out there and they're making a name for themselves and, and getting out there and doing these things. And I just don't see title making an impact enough of an impact to even cover their costs personally and it's interesting that they already lost their ceo uh andy yeah, andy left, chen right. left yeah that. they yeah. launched and then 30 days later or whatever it was he he left but he was quoted uh, you know he basically said artists deserve to be paid for their efforts and titles higher prices reflect this he said quote music should not be free and people should pay end quote which Sort of flies in the face of a hundred years of radio broadcasting. <laughs> yes, um, you know, and and again, it, we're not debating whether artists should be fairly compensated. It's the model that is currently being fallen followed is broken. Um, if in that regard, for them to be fairly compensated, so I yeah, I'm calling Death Watch pretty soon on title. Yep, it will be dead soon. We'll put it on the list. Title. <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, that's news for this show, and we're going to move into our past segment now. And as Eric and I were planning this thing, we both said Commodore 64 because we had them as, <laughs> as troubled youths growing up. So, uh, okay, the Commodore 64, I'm just going to read to you this uh, this section from, from Wikipedia. So I'm, I'm acknowledging the next, until I tell you I'm done quoting them, uh, this next bit comes from Wikipedia who did a, a bang-up job on the history here of this, uh, of this platform. And if you've never heard of the Commodore 64, you'll have a pretty good idea of what it is uh, shortly. Here we go. In January 1981, Moss Technology Incorporated, Commodore's integrated circuit design subsidiary, initiated a project to design the graphic and audio chips for a next-generation video game console. Design work for the chips named Moss Technology VIC-2, Video Integrated Circuit for Graphics, and Moss Technology SID, Sound Interface Device for Audio, was completed in November 1981. So we're going back 
81, it's 2015, so we're going back in time here. Was this 35 years? 34, 30, yeah, 34-ish yeah. years. Okay, yeah. okay. So Commodore then began a game console project that would use these new chips called the Ultimax, or alternatively, the Commodore Max Machine, engineered by Yash Terakura from Commodore Japan. The project was canceled after just a few machines were manufactured for the Japanese market. Okay. Well, at the same time, Robert Bob Russell, the system programmer and architect on the VIC-20, which is another Commodore machine, and Robert Bob Iannis, engineer of the SID, were critical of the current product lineup at Commodore, which was a continuation of the Commodore PET line aimed at business users. With the support of Al Charpentier, he was the engineer of the VIC-2, and Charles Winterbull, manager of Moss Technology, they proposed to the Commodore CEO, Jack Tramiel, a true low-cost sequel to the VIC-20. And Okay, so the VIC-20 is like, it's another computer that you could have bought, another PC-style machine. Okay, Tramiel dictated that the machine should have 64 K of random access memory RAM, although 64 K of dynamic random access memory cost over a hundred dollars us at the time. (laughs) That's so small. Uh, He knew that DRAM prices were falling and would drop to an acceptable level before full production was reached. In November, Tramiel set a deadline for the first weekend of January to coincide with the 1982 consumer electronics show that the same one we still have today. Right. The product was codenamed the Vic 40 as the successor to the popular Vic 20. The team put the whole thing together, and the machine incorporated Commodore BASIC 2.0 in ROM. BASIC also served as the user interface shell and was available immediately on startup at the ready prompt. So you powered up a Commodore 64. That's the first thing you saw was the uh, the ready prompt. Yeah. You know, I'm running BASIC, and I'm ready. And then you can start typing in BASIC commands. Imagine that as your shell. Okay. So the C64 made an impressive debut at the January 1982 CES, and uh, as as was recalled by production engineer David A. Zambicki, all we saw at our booth were Atari people with their mouths <laughs> dropping open saying, how can you do that for $595? And the answer was vertical integration. Due to Commodore's ownership of Moss Technology's semiconductor fab facilities, each C64 had an estimated production cost of 135 bucks. Okay, so now, how much of this thing did they sell once it got off the ground? Although rumors spread in late 1983 that Commodore would discontinue the C64, which not even close to the truth, (laughs) Commodore sold about a million Commodore 64s in 1985 and three and a half million by mid-1986. Although the company reportedly attempted to discontinue the C64 more than once in favor of a more expensive computer, such as the Commodore 128, Demand remained strong. In 86, Commodore introduced the 64C, which is a redesigned C64, which Compute Magazine saw as evidence that, contrary to C64 owners' fears that the company would abandon them in favor of the Commodore Amiga and the 128, the C64 refuses to die. The C64 introduction also meant that the Commodore raised the price of the C64 for the first time, which the magazine cited as the end of the home computer price war. Software sales remained strong. Micropros, uh, for example, in 1987 cited the Commodore and IBM PC markets as its top priorities. So in 87, we got stuck with the C64 going on strong. I mean, this, this is getting to be a five-year-old computer at that point. Yeah, that's a lifetime. So by 1988, Commodore was still selling 1.5 million C64s worldwide, although Epix, E-P-Y-X, another software company, uh, Epix CEO David Shannon Morris cautioned that there are no new 64, uh, 64 buyers or very few. It's a consistent group, but it's not growing. It's going to shrink as a part of our business. So now by 1988, we're finally starting to see the decline of the, of the C64. 
One computer gaming exec stated that the Nintendo Entertainment System's enormous popularity, 7 million sold that year, almost as many as the number of 64 sold in the first five years, had stopped the 64's growth. And uh, Trip Hawkins stated that Nintendo was the last hurrah of the 8-bit world. Although demand for the 64 dropped off in the U.S. by 1990, it was still popular in the U.K. and in other European countries. In the end, economics and not obsolescence ended the C64 market status. In March 94, at CBIT in Hanover, Germany, Commodore announced that the C64 would finally be discontinued in 1995, <laughs> which in computing, that's an astonishing run. Um, Commodore stated that the C64's disk drive was more expensive to manufacture than the, the C64 itself. <laughs> Anyway, by 1994, the company finally filed for bankruptcy. Thank you to Wikipedia for all of those uh, bits of data. Lots of, and there's lots more on that Wikipedia article if you go up and research Commodore 64. So I, I had one of these things, and you, you had one of these I things too? I had one as well, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you remember about it? Uh, the year was about 1989, I think, mm -hmm. and I had, I had had my Nintendo, my NES, for, for about three years at that point. Maybe two, I forget. Uh, and I just remember, you know, getting it. It was it was used from a from an aunt or something like that. They couldn't figure out how to work it or something, so they figured give it to the kid who takes the vacuum apart. Um, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Right. You know. Uh, and so I remember just sort of unboxing it, and and really beyond, you know, some very rudimentary uh, experience with computers at school. You know, like an, an Apple 400 or something like that. I forget. It was really the first computer that I used. And so, you know, I sat down with the manual that sort of taught you the basics of, well, basic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, learned 10, Echo, you know, 20, mm -hmm. go to, you know, all that. And, and just thought that this was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Look, I can change the color of the text, yes. you know, and, and things <laughs> like that. And then... I, I didn't even have all the peripherals attached. Uh, I was I was given it with the the tape drive. Mm -hmm. um, I did not have a disc drive, but I had the tape drive. Um, yeah, and by tape drive we mean a cassette, cassette tape. tape. So you could load programs off of the magnetic tape and the the old fashioned cassette tape oh, into yeah. this thing, and it made a lot of funny noises. Yeah, yeah, there was this flight simulator game I can't recall the name of, but I remember you know you'd enter in the command fastidiously checking the. the the instruction manual to make sure you were doing it right. Hit enter. And then you'd hear the. <laughs> for about two and a half minutes. Yeah. And then the game would load. So, you know, but it was, it was this magic device that could make things happen. And I could control, you know, to some degree, I, I, you know, it was my fledgling steps into com uh, computing, but such, you know, good memories of, of being able to make it, you know, do things. Now, I, I thought it was interesting that the Wikipedia article really stressed how it was a gaming machine, you know, and in the gaming world. And and it certainly had that. It had a cartridge slot in the back. So you'd, you'd have to, of course, power it down first <laughs> and then, uh, you know, put the cartridge in, power the thing up and it would load a game, whatever, whatever the game was. Uh, and if you had a disk drive or a tape drive, you could load games in that way. Uh, I do remember that stuff, but it's not actually the first thing that – my father would probably contradict this because he, he has reminded me recently how when I was you know 14, I was pretty awesome at video games and he despaired for my future <laughs> <laughs> because I did play a lot of games on the Commodore 64, Defender and Jumpman oh, yeah. and uh, Centipede, Pole Position and you know whatever else I played. But uh, but I did spend time coding as well mm. with uh, with basic. So the 
Wikipedia article mentioned Compute Magazine, and we we got that. And one of the features in that magazine, I'm going back a long time, so maybe my memory is faulty, but my memory of Compute Magazine is that included basic programs in the back. And how did you get them into the computer? You friggin' typed them in. And I did. (laughs) I would sit, and there were if there were programs that looked interesting to me, I would type them in. There's this one I remember called, uh, I think it was called Trench Fire. And Trench Fire was a game that was kind of like the star. It was supposed to model the Star Wars uh, trench warfare that uh-huh. happened on the Death Star at the end of, you know, when Luke drops the bomb and uh, blows up the Death Star and saves the day. Well, they spend a lot of time in the trenches with the X-Wing and being chased by the TIE fighters and stuff. And I was like, oh, that is awesome. <laughs> I got to type that. So I typed that sucker in. And mostly it was just I didn't exactly know what was going on, but I would type all this stuff in and, and make it all go. And I would enjoy playing the game. And then I discovered sprites. Mm. And sprites were, you could program them by typing in arrays of numbers. If you knew how to type them in the right way, you'd load a sprite, which would uh, create a graphic figure on the screen. So I changed the trench fire default spaceship, whatever it was, into something I thought was cooler. I designed it on graph paper and figured out all the numbers and then plugged it in that way elite hacksaw yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's really cool i mean you know come on that's the infocom games though too didn't you say you would mess with an like a zork kind of a game or something yeah yeah well so my my buddy and i uh at the time i mean obviously i'm I'm a few years younger than you but we we were you know this was nine ten eleven years old and we would write our own zork style games yeah um and we spent the better part of a summer just writing this one, you know, choose your own adventure essentially yeah, yeah. is what it is because you make a decision and it goes to line 340 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we, we spent hours every day for weeks writing this thing and it was <laughs> terrible, but you know, let's, let's be honest, but it, I, it was so uh, fun to do. You were describing, I did the same kind of a, a thing too. I, I didn't know we were independently, you know, uh, uh, developing simultor competitors. But <laughs> <simultorking>. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, but I, I didn't, I had done that too. Cause I had played Zork and was just mesmerized. I thought it was the coolest right. thing ever. And I wanted to do something like that. Only I wanted to improve the interface, you know, I, cause I was annoyed to go into a room and then not know, Let's see. From this room, can I go north, south, east, west, up, down? What was it? So I actually built this system that would store for each room in an array. It had a a, a number associated with it. And then I would use binary math. I would use an XOR operation to determine uh, what my options were. So the longer the number was, the more bit positions I had to work with. And each bit position I could use to store some attribute of this object. Oh, okay. So if I wanted to know, can I go north, south, east, west, those would all be bits either flipped on or off. I would do the math operation. And then based on the result I got from the XOR, I could determine, okay, position four is uh, a one. And therefore I can go north. And then I could display that on the screen in the header. So I made this whole you know thing that would uh, describe how to go. It wasn't the most efficient thing uh, ever, it's, if you think about it. It's still way but, cooler than mine. But, it, <laughs> but it, it, that worked. I was trying to figure out how to integrate objects. Okay, what kind of attributes would I want to store about an object? Well, if it's a box, it would have a color, and it could be either open or closed. And it just got to be this huge monstrosity problem. Yeah. <laughs> that, and at that point, I was like, well, I know that I could do it, and the challenge is over. So I'm not going to actually do it because that would be a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> I just yeah. got to quit. Yeah. 
Oh, but T- but- taking on uh, company sized, uh, you know, aspirations as a teenager probably wasn't the yeah. best. <laughs> Plus, I was just making it up as I went yeah. in basic. You know, right. I, did, I wasn't a coder as such. I was just hacking my Figuring way it through out and it, having a blast. I had a I had a, a spiral binder that had all the basic commands in it as a reference, so I'd look those up and try to figure out what they could do. So you'd do like string manipulation, and that was my first taste of it. And all that stuff now, I still use that kind of stuff. Right. In, uh, uh, Pearl regular Python expressions, work. regular and, expressions. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it was definitely, yeah, it, was, it was definitely uh, fun. I'm, you know, if you wanted to show off your elite hacksaw skills when the Commodore 64 was on display, you could walk in and do a peek or a poke <laughs> and change the color of the screen. Yeah. Freak like everyone out. <laughs> the screen is pink. What? <laughs> Did you? Did you have a koala pad? I did not. No. So the koala pad was this uh, touch input device that came with a stylus and you could draw with it. It's so like it was a this- Wacom tablet. 30 yeah, years before yeah, and way smaller. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but yeah, you could, you could draw with the koala. Pad. Oh, wow. It wasn't in great. giant pixels. In gi- yeah. <laughs> That's exactly why it wasn't great. Look at my smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course they would, they would, the koala pad people would tease you with, you know, look at these amazing pictures and they'd have this beautiful landscape drawing that someone even in huge pixels had made look amazing. Right. You're like, I can totally do that. Art, yeah. You cannot totally do no. that. <laughs> No, <laughs> it was fun though. No, you can't. Oh, was not the music amazing on the Commodore sixty four? It, for the it time? really was. I mean, what they were able to do with the—I forget what the acronym for the SID. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was a SID exactly. It, yeah. yeah, unbelievable. I mean, the eight bit era really took music. I mean, from you know the Atari lack of music, I guess <laughs> the, the <laughs> Bing Bong Bing Bong. Right, right. To like fully almost orchestrated yeah chiptune music is it's astonishing what some of the composers that wrote for 8-bit systems were able to do yeah there and, i have some demos or had some demos from back in the day that were you just get blown away by how layered uh, melodies oh. and yeah it, it's astonishing yeah 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 it was, well the commodore 64 was all that i mean and just our memories of this thing and some of the accessories for it kind of tells you why it was uh why it was so popular. Why it ran for 14 years. And it was affordable. Yeah. You just, you know, it, it wasn't as fussy as a PC. It was, you, you know. plugged it, it into your TV and. Yeah. Off you went. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. It was its own keyboard. You know, I mean. That's right. That's right. This thing was. Right, right, right. We, clack, 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 clack. <laughs> could have been a sweet keyboard. Now I, now that I type really fast, I kind of wonder how I do on a keyboard like that. <laughs> and long travel and loud clicks. Yeah. Well, there's some people that love that style keyboard, oh, though. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? People pay big bucks for yeah. mechanical action. Yeah. Commodore 64, we miss you. We miss you very much. We Although, do. Although, if you want to go to the memories. Yeah, the, there are a number of emulators out there. Um, and, and I actually just messed around with one the other day. Uh, I, I do still have my Commodore in a box, but I didn't want to, you know, take it out and, and all that. Plus, in, in the interest of the show, I thought it would be good to at least be able to recommend some some emulators. And there are there are several that are, are actually pretty good. Um, it, it, you, you turn on... The emulation and you're sitting at the sitting at the the, the prompt ready. ready to yeah ready to ready <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll I'll briefly you know again we'll put this in the show notes but there's CCS sixty four uh, there's Vice 
uh, which, you know, is a play on the Vic name, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. V-I-C-E. And then there's Comeback 64. That one I didn't actually use. I, I did fire up C- CCS 64 and Vice. And they're both, I mean, it's it's like looking at a tiny little Commodore 64 on your computer did, monitor. Did you have enough memory for it? Uh, it was tough. It was <laughs> tough. Um, yeah. Cramming 64K into eight gigs was was pretty rough, but mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's interesting how you you handle virtual devices and you know virtual tapes and uh, the the interfaces. You know, it's a little it's a little uh, less intuitive than just plugging in the device and and uh, telling it what to do. But it's it's an interesting exercise, and if if you've never used one, you should at least try out the emulator and 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 at least you know hear the hear the the bings and boops and see that ready prompt and mess around with it. Take a trip back in time, kids. Back in my day, we had 64K <laughs> of RAM, and it was good enough. So as we look to the future, uh, we have uh, – well, I'll tell you what. I am mesmerized by power sources. So some of you that listen to Packet Pushers might know that I disappear into the wilderness and go hiking now and again. And, of course, powering your devices while you're out there is a thing. You know, it's a concern. Kind of is, yeah. So, I mean, naturally you'd think, oh, you want solar. That's the answer. But the problem with solar and being out in the wilderness is a lot of times you're under tree cover because you're hiking along in in the woods. And so you don't have direct sunlight or it's a cloudy day. You can't count on that. And solar panels, as most of us know, not terribly efficient um, and still not efficient. And tomorrow, guess what? They're still not going to be efficient. Maybe eventually they'll be good. But plus hiking around the wilderness with a solar pack on your back sounds like a good idea. But actually, you need a lot of surface area, and it's yeah, you know, there's some packs that have solar like built into the back and stuff. But yeah, they're they're more gimmicky than anything. Yeah, you're not you're not going to gain any appreciable, you know, voltage, especially if it's just strapped to your back while you're hiking. You know, if, no. if it folds out and you know you have four, you know, twelve watt cells or something, but. Again, you're carrying all that extra weight. Solar, solar is not really the solution for a hiker. It's one thing to be, you know, house mounted or, yeah. you know, even, yeah, yeah, a, even yeah. a larger portable device that you bring to a an established camp that you have or something like that. But, yeah, if you have cloud cover, poor weather, you know, shade because of trees, if you're hiking up a mountain, guess what? There are trees, like you said. Yeah. Um, the the ability and and the speed with which it would charge a device it's, it's is a trickle charge at best at yeah. absolute that's, best that's and that's get. in direct sunlight you know um so yeah you you found something that kind of tickled your fancy well 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 right so i mean the, my today my current solution is i use a uh, a 20,000 milliamp pack that's good for 4 days to charge your phone you know once a day something like that that's okay it's not a great solution for long distance stuff, um, but there's a Kickstarter project here called Craftwork, and what Craftwork is, it's a, it's butane powered uh, power cell. So butane, it's uh, it, it's a natural gas sort of a fuel. It's used in campfire stoves, and it's pretty readily available. And uh, it's never been easy to convert that into electricity, at least not in a you know portable form factor. And that's what Kraftwerk is doing. Their power cell, you can charge it up with a butane cartridge. Uh, it charges very quickly, like in about three seconds or so. And then internally, it uses that butane to create an electrical supply. So as I'm reading the stats from the Kickstarter page for Kraftwerk, uh, they say one filling supplies energy for 11 iPhone charges. It's pretty small and light. They give dimensions of 
uh, 3.9, about four by three by a little over uh, one inch high at seven ounces. So, I mean, weight is always a concern for people that, that travel and backpack, you know, seven ounces, just under half a pound. It's tolerable for what you get out of it. Um, you can refill it an infinite number of times. So in theory, this thing never runs out because it's taking butane. And so it's opposed to like a lithium cell battery inside that, to, you know, might eventually no longer hold a charge very well. This sure. thing, it says infinitely refillable. And again, like we were talking about the fuel source, it runs on standard camping gas or commercially available lighter gas. And you can get them anywhere. And it, they say can be obtained very cheaply all over the world. And, uh, and it says you'll be ready to go immediately after filling and totally independent for weeks. Weeks is maybe a bit of an exaggeration because it depends on how heavy you are and how much crap you haul with you into the wilderness. Yeah. And are you willing to carry some more butane refill canisters? I mean, they're, they're not terribly heavy, but it's one more thing it's, to carry. It's one more thing, yeah. right? One more thing. So this to me is interesting. And I'm really keen to see this thing go into production because I, I had done some homework on this in the past and, and a butane as, a, as an electrical power source is kind of a unicorn. It's mm. like, yeah, people always talk about it and then it never happens. So it's kind of like cold fusion and you know, a lot of these <laughs> other ideas that come. We can do this for energy. It'll be amazing. And then you just can't because the science of it is too hard to to tech, tech your way through. And you don't end up with a product. Right, right. But craft, you look at Craftworks, they, they've got a, you know their history here. They say, you know, the concept, March 2008. Proof of concept, July 2011, first prototype, November 2014, Kickstarter campaign, December 2014, and then setup of production line, March 2015, field testing, August 2015, adjustments to final prototype, uh, end of November 2015, and then start of big time production ramps up at the end of this year, December 2015 is the, uh, is the plan. So will this thing happen? I mean, they've they've. If you look at that timeline, they've been working on this for seven years. Right. So I I would think they would have given up if it wasn't realistic at this point. Um, but the proof of concept and the the you know the original concept, the proof of concept were several years apart, right? Three over three years apart uh, from the concept and proof to the to the prototype, which was another three years. Mm -hmm. So it really sounds like they've done their homework. Um, and these guys aren't really slouches, it would seem. Um, no, it it. it feels like the real deal. Um, but I'm just such a skeptic. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit cynical, <laughs> the cynical nerd syndrome, <laughs> but, but, but I'm, if this actually happens, I'm pretty keen on this. Uh, you know, that kind of power to be out and about with is, is awesome. So things that I can see as possible concerns, safety, um, production runs and quality, uh, potentially you know what what is its longevity once you have the thing it's infinitely rechargeable yeah but if it's got quality concerns then does it break after a while what's the what's it going to end up costing which in part will be driven by demand uh yeah what quality components will be inside to keep production costs down i mean it looks so good power up to two watts voltage output is five which is perfect for charging usb devices mm -hmm. of course um, you know, working temperature minus 15 degrees centigrade to plus 55 degrees centigrade. So it works up to really hot, not so cold, which could be a concern. I do hike in midwinter. You know, I will it charge my stuff if things are cold. Of course, the part of that, 
does my stuff even work when it's that cold? This is another question. My right. iPhone doesn't. Yeah. It, if it starts to fall below, say, 20 degrees Fahrenheit, 15 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, which is, uh, you know, below zero centigrade, it's eh. Yeah, you got to keep it strapped pretty close to your body if you want to keep it warm enough. And even then, you only got seconds to, like, take some pictures, and then you better get it warm again yep. or you're, you're kind of out of luck. So, But, yeah, it looks like a cool device. The the form factor, I mean, it, it's slim. Uh, it should be easily packable into a side pocket of a backpack or something like that. So mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 really interesting. Well, all right. That's it for show number one, Citizens of Tech. We hope you enjoyed. Please leave us some feedback in the show notes. This will be, since we're starting this as a trial, it's going to be on packetpushers.net. Look for the community show links and you will find this show. Uh, and the show notes will be there and you can leave comments there about what you thought. Um, you can also send us an email, uh, for the moment, we'll just do a trial email packetpushers at gmail.com, which is the one you know us by. We'll accept all your feedback there, what you thought of the show. And, uh, you know what, if the show is great and you like it and it becomes a thing, it'll get its own channel, its own website. How exciting. It's own Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we'll, we'll drive it from there. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care. <laughs>